Welcome to the Allen and Overy podcast series on the future of banking. My name is Roger Louis. I'm a partner based in Hong Kong and co-head of the firm's global banking sector group. In this episode, I'll be discussing organizational culture and, in particular, the role and responsibilities of boards and executive management teams in shaping and driving culture to manage risk, drive performance, and empower employees. Joining me today are my colleagues Sally Dewar and Clive Garfield of ANO Consulting. ANO Consulting provides specialist strategic and regulatory advice services to financial institutions and corporates around the world. Sally is CEO of ANO Consulting, and Clive is an executive director with a particular focus on organizational culture and corporate values. Welcome both. Organization culture and banking has been the subject of much scrutiny, debate, and regulation since the Great Financial Crisis, and it's a topic that is never far from the headlines. If I could start with you, Sally, we recently conducted an in-depth global research study into the organizational culture in financial services. It'd be great to hear your thoughts on what banks have gotten right over the past fifteen years and what they've failed to make the same kind of impact. Thanks, Roger. Well, it's obvious to say, but since the global financial crisis, the focus on conduct and culture has been right at the top of our banks. Um, regulatory and business strategies, and first of all and foremost, banks really started to focus on conduct risk and their first line controls, which were deemed to be lacking um, during the financial crisis. CEOs now have an obligation, both a regulatory obligation and an obligation from broader stakeholders, to deliver a strong tone from the top. And there's been a real onus on. Thinking about culture, both from a board perspective and from the perspective of senior management. So, whilst there's been this real turnaround in the way conduct risk is thought about as a risk stripe in its own right, alongside all the other financial and non-financial risks, there has been nevertheless a lack of consistency in the approach. To which firms take in terms of learning from incidents, lessons not being learned consistently, not embedding the behaviours around conduct and conduct risk throughout an organisation, and ensuring that supervisors and people managers really have the strength and expertise and technical capability to manage their teams from a business perspective, but to ensure that that tone from the top reaches all employees. Some organisations haven't yet got to a framework where they can recognise poor behaviour, both in terms of day-to-day execution of activities, but also in performance management. Thank you, Sally. Clive, is there anything you'd like to add to that? From my experience, I think firms are trying hard. What I'd like to see with organisations is a little bit more focus on really clear strategy to meet their culture objectives. There seems to be a lot of effort going in. lot of actions being undertaken but actually what's a clear strategy look like have they got a holistic view of where they are now and where they want to get to and in some ways making sure that that's all joined up and everyone in the organization really understands what that strategy is and what they're trying to achieve do you feel the tone has been set from the top in, in many organizations now if i were a board or an executive management in a financial institution what would I do to cultivate the right organisational culture in setting the tone? It's really clear that boards have a role in terms of 
culture. That role is set out in the, the corporate governance codes. It's set out in the regulatory requirements of boards. So how does that translate into what they actually do day to day? Most firms would say that their board approves the culture strategy in the same way that it improves a business strategy or a risk appetite statement. And so having approved that culture strategy that aligns to the business strategy through the values and behaviours that the organisation sets, it then needs to ensure that the culture discussion is high up the agenda and that their ex-co are held to account to deliver actions to meet the strategic objectives. So ensuring that that culture strategy meets the purpose and values of the organisation. And also that in terms of the day-to-day operations and execution of the business strategy, it has a line of sight back to those purpose and values. What's been quite interesting in the survey that we did and the research that we did was that 40% of our respondents, and bear in mind we talked to 500 firms in financial services across the globe. So 40% of those respondents don't consider their boards or senior leadership to be fully committed to maintaining positive culture in their businesses. And that's a really significant number when you think about the focus that financial services institutions have had on culture in the last 15 years. The employees who engage in those businesses still don't think that their boards or senior management team are fully committed to maintaining that positive culture is quite a big statistic to think about. That 40% number is interesting, isn't it? Either the boards are not doing it or they're not being seen to do it. And one might argue that the two are equally important. Perception is often everything. And often you find that there is this gap between what boards and senior exec think and believe they're doing and think and believe the culture is and what is actually happening or how that's translating to the people sat on trading desks or within business functions. So how do we actually measure success? I mean, obviously you could ask HR to run numbers on retention, etc. but any other techniques, Clive? Firms have done a lot in terms of pulling together KPIs that they may think give them an indicator of good culture. There's no lack of KPIs in terms of what they think might point to good culture. But I guess for me, not only just having those KPIs, but really how do you go about as a board and and an ex-co, how do you go about interrogating those KPIs? Do you do it with the same rigour as perhaps you do the financials? When you look at your P&L, are you asking yourself those same questions? Are you being curious? Do you have the right sort of leading and lagging indicators? That's in terms of quantitative metrics. But what are you actually doing to supplement that? Because the quantitative numbers themselves can be viewed in different ways with different bias. What are we doing to supplement those quantitative metrics? What's the qualitative that we've got in hand? Uh, Is it case studies? Is it anecdotal feedback? Is it feedback from engaging with employees as well? And then the question we often get asked is, okay, so we've put a lot of actions in place and we can measure how we're doing against those actions but how do we know they're really effective on the ground? How do we know that they're they're effective in changing the culture for the better? The one way that I would always urge firms to look at is how are they engaging with employees? How are they gathering feedback from all stakeholders, be that customers, clients, employees? How are they getting feedbacks to actually bring those KPIs to life and actually lead to more meaningful discussion at the board level as well? 
and down to your perception versus reality point, Roger, as well. You know, in our research, only 29% of respondents really thought that their firm had clear actions in place to improve culture with clear accountable owners. So either it's not happening or it's not translating on the ground. And arguably, if employees don't think there's clear actions around culture, if there isn't that leadership, if there isn't that role modelling, that can be quite damaging as well. Maybe just add to that as well in that many firms are struggling to think about the metrics that they should have to monitor culture. And some of those metrics, as Clive says, is about quantitative metrics. The problem and the danger of having a scorecard of metrics is that, like everything, you push towards having everything as rag rated green and then you think that you're done with culture and that project or that initiative has come to an end whereas what we know is that culture and the the line of sight on culture has to be enduring because the culture of an organization is changing all the time and therefore board and senior management's response to how they think about that and how it aligns to their strategy and the actions that come out of that need to be under constant review and You should never have the mindset that we're done on culture. So if we step away from the metrics and the measurement and actually look at the substance of what good culture is and what distinguishes best performing boards and senior management against those that need improving, what might those look like? Every organisation that I've looked at or I've worked with as we've thought about culture has much more success, much more immediacy of success if there is this sort of concept of strong tone from the top. It's not just words on a page. If you have a a CEO who really believes in um, the values of an organisation and really wants to translate those values into the way business is done and really exercises strong leadership and a willingness to engage in thinking about culture and generating a a framework for a good, strong culture, you're much more likely to have a successful outcome because you're much more likely to have a employee workforce that engages. You're much more likely to be able to build trust. And even though you make mistakes, of course, every business does make mistakes. If you're willing to be transparent, learn from those mistakes and really focus on this concept of culture is enduring rather than culture is about setting some annual actions and delivering against those. Considering sort of genuine change versus a revolving set of annual deliverables, then you're much more likely to have an enduring and sustainable strong culture. I guess culture by definition requires time to seep in. It's not something that you put on a piece of paper and say we're done. I think I'd add to that in terms of the strong CEO leadership, but also making sure that leadership is authentic as well. And some of the best, most improved cultures that we've seen are those where you know mistakes have happened and leadership have put their hands up and said, look, we've made mistakes here and shared those Uh, as much as they can, share the information around the incidents, make it really clear that this happened in our organisation, we want to get better. And actually through discussion, through raising their hands and having those authentic discussions with employees, they've actually sort of moved the dial on culture. So not, not covering things up, not keeping things quiet, but actually being really open and trusting employees. And if you trust your employees as a CEO, that trust from my experience will be repaid back to you. 
Just taking a step back, I read through your uh, report again earlier today before the podcast. It's a great read. So what have you found through doing this survey? Uh, what are the insights? Any surprises? It's been really interesting. And some of the things we found were exactly as we expected. And then there were some interesting uh, new themes that have emerged and evolved. So we thought we would maybe give you a sense of a few of those. The first one I, I would start with is role modeling. It's a really key one. It's what we've talked about before, the importance of having that CEO as the figurehead, role modeling and setting that tone and then having that tone sort of run through the leadership of the organization. What was very surprising is you think about we're in financial services. We had a global financial crisis 15 years ago. One of the really strong themes that came out of that was the need for senior leadership to role model the right behaviours. And yet 75% of the respondents of the research rated their leadership unfavourably when it came to whether they role model the firm's expected behaviour. And this is really key because change of this sort starts at the top. And even if you change policies, procedures, ways of recognising employees, you're never going to really get to the heart of changing and evolving culture and the dynamics of culture if you don't address the leadership's role and responsibility in that. I'd probably pick up the next one of speaking up. Interesting in our research 56%, so just over half of our respondents said that they're confident that their firm's employees are encouraged to voice their concerns. So if you've got 56% say they're confident, that's 44% don't feel confident that people are going to speak up. And that's a massive worry, I would say, for a lot of organisations. And there are really substantial differences in those numbers between those firms that we think are leading the charge when it comes to culture and those firms that really need to do a lot more. And it's interesting, some of the themes that we're going to touch on here, I think role modelling and tone from the top and speaking up, they really build a sense of trust in the organisation. Trust and culture are so interlinked. When you look at speaking up, it's interesting. Typically, people think, well, why don't people want to speak up? And very often people think, well, it's because there may be fear of reprisal. But actually, 90% of the times it's because somebody's spoken up once, the organisation hasn't responded, speak up apathy sets in and you think, well, the organisation's not that interested, why would I raise an issue again? And that tends to be a really dangerous cycle. Engagement for me, absolute keystone of good culture. Without a commitment to building two-way communications between management and employees, it's really difficult to establish effective engagement and actually to build trust. And that trust is really what you need between senior leadership employees to build and maintain good culture over the longer term as well. And actually, when you look at engagement, only 53% of respondents say their leadership team actively listens to employees and respond accordingly, which is pretty worrying. So from a, an employee point of view, we talk about speaking up, we talk about engagement. If you don't think by saying something you're going to get a response, doesn't really make any difference whether you like it or not. Just responding and showing that you're actively listening is, is a way of building up trust. If you don't think that's going to happen, then that really will start to break down the speak up mechanics as well. And it's interesting in focus groups, people like to be heard. People like to feel that their opinions matter. And I asked one attendee of a focus group, why do you think you're here? 
And the response, which I really found quite warming, somebody somewhere cares enough to hear what I've got to say. And that, for me, just speaks to engagement. And one of the questions that we asked was for respondents to select the top three current and forward-looking challenges when it comes to culture. And two of the responses that came out most dominantly was the threat of technology. Now, obviously, technology provides lots of opportunity, but the cultural threat of technology and the threat of having a multi-generational workforce. When you think about it, in terms of the workforce, we now have four generations of employees working together. And we know that the way kids think about issues compared to the way that I think about issues are vastly different. And so we have to be alive to that as we think about culture, as we think about how themes resonate, how we think about how actions are interpreted, how communications are heard, how directions are given. Everybody thinks about it and acts upon it in a different way. And I think the leadership has to be cognizant of that in thinking about how to get the best out of this multi-generational workforce. Regarding technology, technology innovations do pose challenges as well as opportunities and balancing the very different and often competing needs of these generations in the way that you think about technology also creates a challenge from a cultural perspective. It's an interesting one in terms of the generational differences. I guess that's diversity in a slightly different lens. It's diversity amongst generations, which is something people don't often talk about, but it's interesting that you picked it up in your report. On technology, the incursion, is is that sort of more born by apprehensions about technology taking over jobs or is it technology enabling people to do things not physically and to spend less time together or is it a bit of both? I think it's a bit of both. What does technology mean for my role? Will I have a role? Is it going to change the skill sets that I need to have? Is it going to eliminate vast areas of the activities that traditionally humans would have carried out. I think it's from a challenge perspective, is it going to change the way that, you know, the checks and balances are done? And what will be my responsibility around those checks and balances if technology is involved? So there's lots of different angles to it. One of the things that really creates a culture within an organisation, and we saw this I certainly heard this a lot from employees post-COVID, is that social capital, that goodwill that employees have, that face-to-face relationships and the ability to build that goodwill between each other in the office, you know, technology can start to impact that. So I think in some ways that's going to be a real challenge as well. And certainly you see that with hybrid working and, and technology impacts there as well. I mean, I think on the going back to the multi-generational impacts as well, I think diversity and inclusion has a part here as well, because I've certainly heard before where some employees think that actually a young, dynamic workforce is the way of the future. And some employees have turned around and said to me, well, I'm not young, but I am dynamic. And that narrative is making me feel excluded. So we've got to be really careful about balancing the needs of the generations and actually from a, an inclusion point of view, not bucketing people simply because of an appearance of age. I'm definitely hearing a lot more about culture being talked about 
at an institutional level. Do you think we're at an inflection point? What's brought this about? Definitely more stakeholders have an interest in culture than ever before. If you think about the news, everything that comes from a community perspective, the expectations of society, layered with that, you've got regulators and their extreme focus on behaviours, culture, conduct. You've got young workforces being very demanding around culture when they're applying for jobs. They want to know what the approach is on hybrid working or well-being or mental health or uh, social mobility. So they're far more demanding around these topics than ever before. And also existing employees fear of speaking up. But the counter to that is that employees do feel they have a platform. Oftentimes now they're encouraged to have a platform, they're encouraged to speak up. And that changes the dynamic of how leadership has to engage and respond to employees. Social media also means that issues that could cause reputational damage from a poor culture is known about, is socialised, is retweeted, is on Instagram, you know, within seconds and minutes. So there's no way of escaping or managing reputational risk in a way that it might have been managed a few years ago. You know, one of the things that a lot of recruits now, when they apply for jobs, they're asking three questions. So non-technical questions and not about the job per se. What's the culture of the organisation look like? How diverse is it? Which I guess is absolutely linked to culture as well. But also the final one, which is common now, is what's your hybrid working policy? When you actually ask them within those, certainly looking up your firm, looking up feedback on Glassdoor, for example, tends to be the sort of trip advisor for firms these days and when you actually look and if anyone cares to look at their own firm it's quite an interesting read but when you actually look at your organization and think actually the access to information they have now then it's fair to say that actually firms really need to focus very hard now on, on their organizational culture and, and really understand how quickly that can play into any reputational damage as well if you're not careful. And especially, I guess, for financial institutions, there's a very real potential financial impact of bad culture as well. But today we've been talking about financial institutions, but are there anything we could learn from other sectors, do you think? Certainly some of the big themes in the research, the speaking up element, certainly there's some uh, sectors, aviation, I'm thinking, anything that's really grounded in in need to have strong health and safety protocols speaking up tends to have a really really strong foundation but actually the themes that are coming out of the report albeit that they're financial services respondents some of the themes are very very common across all sectors certainly when I think about embedding culture we spoke about culture actions and what firms are doing but actually how culture really gets embedded. So one of the most common examples I see is where firms have very strong compliance policies, risk policies, strong procedures, but actually designed to meet objectives of sound risk management, for example. But actually, when the sort of rubber hits the road, when employees are implementing those policies and procedures, it's not quite delivering the outcome. There's a gap there. And that gap is usually caused by adding humans and employees to the equation and people making different judgment calls and sometimes circumventing procedures if they don't quite work. So that tends to be a common thing between sectors. The other common thing that I definitely see a lot of is 
is the normalization of bad behavior. So the extent to which bad behavior is tolerated by an organization can very, very quickly set a wider culture. There's lots of evidence to show that that normalization really can have a, a really dramatic effect. So if I was a corporate picking up this report, I might be slightly off put by the fact that it says financial services, but I'd be definitely looking at those themes because there's some real commonality there. So maybe let me ask a question to wrap up. So if I were CEO of a bank or a chair that you're advising on, what would you be prioritizing and that I need to get right? So I think to start with, you know, taking a long, close look at your own commitment to the culture agenda and that your own behavior that that then translates to and, and having a really sort of honest reflection on yourself and then thinking about how your senior leadership team responds to that. You know, how do they think about culture? Do they feel as if they own their business end to end? Sometimes it's as simple as that. Do they feel as if they own the risk profile of the business they're executing and that they have a responsibility for managing that business end-to-end -end and managing the risk and the risk culture that sits within that. Think about the way the values of the organization feeds into the business strategy. There's no point having a set of values that espouses to put the customer first at all costs if that's not the way the teams on the ground are asked to execute their business or the way that their compensation or their reward is structured because that will drive a gap between the values are stated and the reality of what happens. So really having a look at whether the values and business strategy are actually aligned and then thinking about the governance framework that you've got in place to drive any changes. So governance isn't about creating levels of bureaucracy and slowing down decision making. Governance is there to protect everybody and to allow good sound decisions to be made and to allow senior leadership to really think about and talk about the risks, the challenges, the culture. So make sure that there is a governance framework that enables escalation, enables sound decision making and enables cultural change to be understood and taken forward. Thinking about whether there is a gap between what you as senior leadership believe the values are and how they're being lived day to day. One of the things we often find when we do our culture work is that leadership have one view of what the culture is. And then when we go and talk to employees and engage them, how that translates into what is happening on the ground can often be incredibly different. So being honest and getting that independent view of the difference or the gap between culture on the ground and culture at the senior leadership level. And then just being engaged and open to thinking about culture in a different way, thinking about the challenges and opportunities of technology, the challenges and opportunities of having a multi-generational workforce, the role of leadership, the ability for individuals to speak up, just thinking about all of those themes and doing an assessment yourself against where you as your firm actually exist and what more you could be doing. 
I guess a lot of great CEOs who may be delivering great financial results quarter after quarter think that they are doing a fantastic job on the cultural front. In a way, the work that you're doing um, in terms of the surveys as well as benchmarking against the industry in terms of what other people are doing could be quite helpful for them to know how exactly they're doing on the cultural front. Do you have any sort of closing remarks, Clive? Thank you. I think in some ways having an authentic reflection on where you think you are, I said at the beginning around the KPIs, just an honest interrogation of what you're seeing and whether actually things could be done better. It's not about having a hundred actions in place that look as though you're ticking some sort of box. Much better just to step back and say, look, we think we've got a problem here. Let's really address it. Let's try and move the dial culturally and just being really efficient and strategic about it as well to ask for boards, for CEOs, for excos, for senior leaders, for GCs, to really ask themselves the question, do we think we're doing the right thing to improve our culture based on what we're seeing? And is there more that we can do? It's clearly not going to go away, whether you buy into this agenda or not. For financial services firms, at least, the regulators deem it to be an incredibly important topic. Whenever there is a failure of a financial services firm, the regulators always go back and look at what was the role of governance, what was the role of culture, what was the role of the risk and control environment. They're the common areas where regulators will look and they're having increasingly less and less patience around firms that haven't embraced and engaged in the culture of their organisation. So it's positive because it makes good business sense. It's necessary because it protects you from big reputational risk issues and it's necessary from a regulatory perspective. So these are all reasons to keep culture firmly on the agenda. Well, on that, thank you very much both. I've learned a lot from this session. Thank you.